Hey, good morning. So fun to be with you. Uh, hey, let me just say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, do I belong here? Yeah, you absolutely do. So no question is off limits. If you ever want to grab coffee at the boxcar or a beer somewhere, we would love to sit with you and talk about Jesus and the claims of Christianity. So thanks for being with us. Um, let, me, let me say one other thing, too, just by way of heads up. Uh, so I'm really excited about next week because we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series uh, it's going to be called First John, very creative name. We came up with that ourselves. Uh, First John, a life of love. And, and so here's the thing about our culture that you probably have recognized. We're kind of enamored with love as a culture. Love this, love that. We love to talk about love and be driven by love, which is a really beautiful thing. Um, but what is love, and what does it look like to actually live a life of love uh, in the way that Jesus would describe? That's what we're going to look at together. I think it's going to be really fun. This is a great series for those of you that are kind of struggling as Christians with uh, assurance or what, what, is, what does Jesus want for my life? This is also a really good series for those of you that are just exploring some of the claims of Christianity, like what is this really about? If I give my life to Jesus, what does that look like? So I think both, both of you would really love to be a part of that. That kicks off next week. You can get like an invite card on your way out, and man, please bring friends next week. I think it's gonna be really, really helpful. Um, so l- let me do this. Let me pray for us, and then we are gonna jump on in and get after it. So Jesus, thank you for my friends. Thank you for the people in this room. Thank you for the gift of today. Today is the day where you call us to yourself. It's not us trying to flag you down and get your attention, but you are calling us to yourself. So I pray today, Holy Spirit, all that you have for us, all that you want to do in us, all that you want to speak to us today, we are looking to you and to your word. Would you do that today through the power of the Spirit and through the scriptures? We pray that Jesus would be made much of. We pray that our hearts would long for you. And God, I pray for my friends in the room that just barely dragged themselves in today. I pray that you would meet them in a profound way and reveal your mercy and love. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for this day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts chapter 1. Uh, Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to camp out, 1 and chapter 2. While you're turning there, I, I want to I just say that uh, in the last two weeks, my wife had our third baby and uh, had a little boy. I got to show you a picture because I'm a dad. Uh, that's Bear. Meet Bear Burkhart. Uh, he was a bear to give birth to. There's a lot of bear jokes that are going around in my house. Uh, but mom's good. Baby's good. We are having a lot of fun. We are not sleeping at all, um, but having a blast. So that's my son. And it's, it's crazy with your third, you know, because you've, you're, you're, I don't know if you've seen that car commercial where uh, the first, the mom is like at a mechanic's place and, and the, the mechanic is like wanting to, you know, do, hold the baby or something. And she's like squirting him down with sanitizer and just really terrified. And then it sh- like fast forwards and it's like your second child or your third child. And she's like, here, hold the baby, you know, and she's digging in her purse for something. And the mechanic's hands are gro- like, that's just what happens when you have more than one child. You just stop freaking out about everything like you did with your first. Um, but, I, but I was remembering um, our first, Evie, my oldest daughter, and I was remembering being in the hospital with her, and it was, it was good. It was, it was good. I didn't know what I was doing, but we had the nurses coming in about every hour to help out. So about every hour, the nurse would come in, and so that's not good for your sleep, but it is good for your state of mind, because you're like, I don't really know how to keep this thing alive, so it's great that you keep coming in my room to help me. Uh, they would change some of the first few diapers, which are really gross, and uh, there's a few other things that the nurses did that I was just really stoked about, 
And then there's that really terrifying experience where they, they begin to check you out of the hospital and they take you down to the front and they, um, they kind of help you load the baby into the car seat and you get the baby all loaded in and you're kind of like, all right, let's do this. And you're like making room for the nurse to get in the car too, to go home with you. And then you realize she's not going home with me, right? This is where she works and now they're just sending me home on my own. And I remember driving away with the nurse kind of waving in the distance and I remember going, I don't know what to do. Like, I, 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 it dawned on me, I have a human that I have to keep alive and I don't know what to do. I'm totally freaked out and I feel completely alone. That was my experience with our first. Here's why I tell you that story. I think, um, I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians especially, kind of feel like Jesus did that to the church. I think a lot of people think that Jesus kind of did that to the church. It's like he came into this world, he grabbed some disciples, he started to do life and ministry with those disciples, and, and after three years, he then died on a cross and rose from the dead, and he kind of commissions them into the world to live on mission, and then he just says, all right, you've got this, I'll see you later, and he waves, and then he just kind of floats on up to heaven. And the disciples are just kind of left there standing. What do we do? We don't know how to keep this thing called the church alive. We don't actually know how to go about living on mission. We feel left alone. And here's the good news. The good news is that that couldn't be further from the truth of the story. That the story is not a story of Jesus leaving us alone to do his mission. But this is a story of him giving us everything we need to carry out what he's called us to carry out as a church. So uh, here's the thing. Two weeks ago we talked about what would it look like to create a church culture where we're not building barriers and walls between people that aren't Christians and the church? What would it look like to actually take Jesus to the people? And then last week, Josh was with us, and he talked about what would it look like to be a church for the city? How do we do that? And what I want to do is just coming off, off the heels of that, before we get into First John next week, I just want to talk about how do we do this? We've been told here's what it is to be a church for the city, but how do we actually go about carrying out all that God has called us to do? So that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to be talking about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So if you're with me, Acts chapter 1, I want to pick it up in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 11. This is a guy named Luke. He, uh, he was actually friends with a lot of people that did life and ministry with Jesus, and so he had spent years gathering uh, kind of a historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now look at verse four, this is important. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still very confused about what Jesus is all about, and so they're asking him, hey, are you going to destroy the Roman Empire at this time and establish your kingdom on earth? And, and Jesus said in verse seven, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but, look at verse eight, 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, this is not how I thought the story would go. When I first read Acts, this is not how I thought the story would go. I thought the story would go like Jesus kind of commissioned them and he's like, all right, I've died on the cross, I've risen from the dead, and I've commissioned you to go out into the city and to live on mission. What are you waiting for? Just go ahead and go. But instead what Jesus does is he does something that's pretty strange and not what you'd expect. He goes, all right, I'm commissioning you to go out on mission, but wait, I don't actually want you to go yet there's something that you're still lacking. This is interesting, right? I mean, think about these guys' resumes and all that they had. Uh, These were guys that were handpicked by Jesus himself. Uh, These were guys that had spent three years of their life every day, night and day, with Jesus, watching him do life and watching him do ministry. They've seen his miracles. They've seen uh, and heard his sermons that he preached. They'd seen him actually die on a cross. And check this out. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. What more do these guys need? In fact, it's even interesting if you get to the very end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what's interesting there is that in, in, in those accounts, Jesus actually supernaturally opens up their minds to understand the scriptures before he ascended into heaven. So think about that. He's walking him through Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament to Malachi, and he's saying, listen, I'm opening up your mind to understand the scriptures. What more could these guys actually need? They had actually been commissioned by Jesus himself. He had looked them in the eyes and said, I want you to go out on mission And yet all of those things, you stack them all up and you add them together and they still didn't have what they needed to carry out what God had called them to carry out. What were they lacking? Well, according to Jesus, here's what he says. He says, I want you to wait. Don't go on mission yet because this is the thing that you're missing. You're missing the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot do this mission until you receive the fullness and the power of the Spirit. So here's the turning point. Go to Acts chapter two. I just want to show you this. This is the turning point in the story when Jesus sends the spirit and power. Verse one of chapter two. Several days later, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire. By the way, fire in the Old Testament was a symbol of the presence of God, right? Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the turning point for the church. They go from not having what they need to carry out the mission of God to being filled with the Spirit and empowered to do mission. And it's at this moment that the entire church and and the way that they function totally begins to shift and change. They go from about 120 people in one place to uh, by the year 300 AD, it's estimated that there were 34 million Christians scattered across the entire known world. 
34 million Christians. This is how drastic what God was doing in and through them. They became a church for the city in such a way that though they were being persecuted by the most powerful empire on the planet, the Roman Empire, you can actually take a plane and fly to Rome today and tour the ruins of the Roman Empire, but the church is alive and well and thriving and flourishing all across the globe. Like what God did through this church was powerful and profound and it did not start with the cross of Christ as beautiful and vital and important as that is. It didn't start with the resurrection of Christ as essential and important as that is. Where the church began to shift and change and actually function as a church for the city was when the Holy Spirit came in power. So what would it look like to not just do mission because I think Anybody can do mission, but what would it look like to do mission in the power of the Holy Spirit? What is it that the Holy Spirit gave us in Acts chapter 2 that you and I get to experience today? Well, I just want to give you two quick things, two really brief things. Here's the first thing that the Holy Spirit gave us. He gave us spiritual power, spiritual power. Now, what, what do you think of when you hear that phrase, spiritual power? Maybe some of you think of like the Harry Potter series and you get like Voldemort's uh, face in view and, and that's what you think of when you think of spiritual power. Maybe you think of uh, like a televangelist who is manip- manipulative and kind of praying for people but also pushing them down and, and doing all these weird things basically just to fleece people financially and make a lot of money. Maybe that's what you think of. Or maybe you just think of someone that's very serious and godly and, and never cracks a smile. That's spiritual power. I, I, I don't know, maybe you don't even have a grid. Like you, you think of spiritual power and your brain can't produce any real images because it's, it's kind of blank. I don't know what spiritual power looks like. Well, let me just define spiritual power for you. Here's just a, a, a way that I would love for you to think about it. It's, it's when God through the Spirit gives you and I the ability to do life and ministry like Jesus. It's when God, through the Spirit, gives you and I the ability to do life and ministry the way that Jesus did. So think about Jesus and the way that he lived. Jesus was both God and man, right? He was both God and man, not like 50-50, but 100% God, 100% man. But I think this is often how we picture Jesus. I want to show you this picture. I think this is often how we think of him and the way that he did ministry in life right? Uh, On the one hand, it's like, yeah, just an average guy, just a normal guy, uh, can't really tell him apart from anybody else, kind of nerdy, kind of an intellectual, but then all of a sudden he takes off the glasses and he rips off the the top layer of his shirt, and what's really going on is he's Superman. He's an alien from another planet that has profound power to, to function in really cool ways on our planet. I think a lot of people think of Jesus like this in his life and ministry. On the outside, he looks just like a normal guy. He really looks normal, like you couldn't tell him apart from any other human. But on the inside, he's really God. It's really God wrapped in a skin suit. And so this is often how we think of Jesus in his life. And we think, oh yeah, the way that Jesus lived and the way that he did ministry, the way that he you know, was able to walk into a room and, and heal the sick and the way that he was able to cast out demons and the way that he was able to preach with authority and the way that he was able to live with a, a singular focus in life and, and go to the cross and suffer in our place, the way he was able to do all that is because he was God. He resisted temptation because he was God. He did all of these things because he was God. 
But actually, Scripture tells us something very different. I don't have time to take you there, but in Philippians 2, here's what it tells us. It says that when Jesus entered human history, when God became a man, he actually laid aside his rights to divinity, meaning he did not access all of these divine attributes that he had, but instead, in humility, he chose to live his entire life out of his humanity. In other words, Jesus did not live his life as God, though he was God. He lived his life as a human, fully as a human, the way that you and I live. So here's the question. How did Jesus do the things that he did? How did he raise the dead? How did he heal the sick? How did he cast out demons with such authority and power? How did Jesus resist sin and temptation? How how did he do this? Here's how. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you go back and you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus actually does zero ministry until a key turning point in his life. Do you know what it was? It was his baptism. Prior to the baptism of Jesus, Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't heal a person. He doesn't do a miracle. Jesus doesn't do anything until his baptism. And then at his baptism, here's the scene that we have. The heavens are ripped open, and God the Father speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he sends the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in, in Matthew that the Spirit descends on Jesus and rests on him. And then here's what we see happening. From that key turning point on, Jesus goes from not doing miracles, not healing the sick, not raising the dead, not preaching any sermons, doing no ministry, to then receiving the fullness and power of the Spirit. And then from that point on, he starts and kicks off his earthly life and ministry. So how did Jesus do the things that he did? By the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. He lived as a human with the presence of the Spirit and with his power. Now, he, here's what's interesting. The, the church functions very similarly, and I want to show you this. Look again at Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 4. It says, While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John, look at this word, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, earthly life of Jesus, no ministry, baptism, ministry begins to explode out of the life of Jesus. Early church, I've sent you into the world, but don't go yet. Don't do any ministry. Don't live on mission yet. The baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and then ministry explodes for the early church. What's so fascinating is when you read through the book of Acts, you begin to realize that all the things that Jesus did these people are doing too. You don't have to be God because God himself comes in power to rest on and fill and energize and and equip his people to do ministry and mission like Jesus. This is what it is to be spirit-filled. It's to live the way Jesus lived. Now this is so crazy. Like if you think of the picture of baptism, uh, here in a few weeks we're gonna get to baptize some people that Jesus has made their dead heart come alive. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna take them and they're gonna go all the way underwater and they're gonna come back up. They're gonna be immersed in water. And that's, there's so many things being communicated in that picture, but one of the things that's being communicated is that they're being washed of their sins. Another thing that's being communicated is that, that their old way of life, it's like a watery grave. They're dying and they're, they're being raised up into a new way of life. But here's what God is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm going to baptize you in Acts 2 
with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to immerse you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to take you under the waters of the Spirit of God and raise you up. You're going to be deluged with my presence. You're going to be saturated. And then from that point, when you have my spiritual power, you'll be able to actually go and do the things that I've called you to do. Here's what we see happening in Acts 2. This is what mission empowered by the Spirit looks like. Acts chapter 2, Peter goes from being a coward to standing up with authority and boldness, preaching the gospel, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. What caused Peter to go from being a man of fear and cowardice to a man of boldness? It wasn't just the resurrection. It was the Spirit of God coming in power. Here's what we see happening in Acts chapter 3. A man who can't walk is healed. In Acts 5, we read that many signs and wonders were being done among the people. Later on in Acts 5, we see the apostles joyfully enduring physical suffering by the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter 9, we see Peter walk up to a paralyzed man uh, and heal him. And then he goes to a, a dead little girl named Tabitha and he raises Tabitha from the dead. Acts 13, the apostle Paul, by the power of the Spirit, he actually causes a man who is opposing Jesus and the gospel to go blind right? In Acts 16, there's a demonized slave girl that's trapped uh, and being oppressed by the enemy, and in the power of the Spirit, she's delivered through the Apostle Paul. In Acts 19, the Spirit of God is poured out in such a dramatic way on the entire region of Asia Minor that there is this massive revival that took place. Listen, so many people were coming to know Jesus. So many people that, that the idol factories, the people that were making graven images for people to bow down to of the god Artemis, which was the Ephesians god, they were beginning to lose money and go nearly bankrupt because so many people were turning to Jesus. Can you imagine if the porn industry started to lose money and, and throw a riot because so many people are becoming Christians that the porn industry was losing money? This is the power of the Spirit, and on and on and on I could go, but can I just sum it up like this? Everything that we hope to see happen as a church, all that we're asking God to do, everything that we want to accomplish cannot be done in our own strength or power. It can't. You have friends that you work with that don't know Jesus. You cannot cause their heart to come alive. People in your life have addiction. You cannot deliver them of their addiction. There are marriages that are falling apart and you don't have the words to say. There are people th that you know that are sick, that are hurting, and you cannot do anything except for really be there for them and, and help them get to the hospital or see a great doctor, but there's really nothing you can do except through the power of the Spirit. You see, we want to be a church for the city, but that means that we need to be a church that's fueled and empowered by the Spirit of God himself. This is really what we want to see happen as a church. Like, we want to see things take place that we could say, there's no way we could take credit for that. God had to do it. We want to see people healed. We want to see people that are, that are racked with addiction delivered. We want to see people that are far from God, that are really totally uninterested, come to know God. This is all what God is doing by his power through his church and not ours. So that's the first thing that the Spirit of God does for us. He gives us spiritual power. Here's the second thing that the Spirit of God does for us, and this is important for mission. He begins to, he begins to do something that's communal transformation. 
communal transformation. Uh, Think about this. The Holy Spirit, one of his primary jobs is to come into the lives of people and to actually make them holy. And that word holy, what does that mean? It just means to be set apart, to to be different, to make them look and function like Jesus in so many different ways. And this is what the Spirit of God does, not just for an individual, but he does it for entire communities. Communal transformation. Let me just read you sections of Acts 2 and Acts 4 and think with me about the, the, the power of the Spirit at work to change the lives of these people. Here's chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, listen to this, they were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, look at the way they were living, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Does that sound like the church in Oklahoma to you? Does that describe the church in Oklahoma? Does that describe Frontline? Does that describe us? It's like, and here's what God did through the power of the Spirit. People were selling their cars and their stuff, and they were giving away their stuff to those that had need. They were devoted they, they, they loved Jesus and loved his word. They were, they were spending time praying. There was this marked joy about them, even when they would do simple, daily, mundane tasks like eating food. Does that mark the church? This is what the Spirit of God does. He brings communal transformation. Look at this one. This is another one, chapter four. This blows my mind. It says in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Let let me just reread that phrase. Look look at this. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That sounds very anti-American, doesn't it? But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. You don't naturally go there as a person. That's the Spirit of God at work in a person's life. We naturally gravitate towards greed and ownership, but the Spirit of God, he pushes us into radical generosity. We naturally drift and gravitate towards kind of just isolation and and autonomy, but the Spirit of God brings us into robust community. We naturally drift away from passion and intensity and devotion, and we drift into laziness and apathy. But the Spirit of God, he pushes us and leads us into this this desiring, heartfelt, blazing love for God. This is what the Spirit of God does. It's communal transformation. It's really fascinating when you read historians over the last 2,000 years as they talk about some of the things that the early church was known for. Even if you go back about 18, 1900 years, even 2,000 years in the first century, and you look at some of the marks of the early church, they were really known for five things. 
five things, and I've said this to you before, but I think this is so valuable to think about. The first thing they were known for was racial and ethnic diversity, right? This, this isn't like a high mark of our country right now, but the early church was known for racial and ethnic diversity. And listen, guys, this was totally unheard of in the first century because you had so much racism and classism and division based on uh, economic status and whether you're a Jew or a Greek or what type of Jew you were, or what type, like all of these different classes of people. And then that's not even to get into the massive inequality that existed between men and women uh, and the way that women were completely belittled in the first century and Jesus comes along and through the power of the spirit the church goes from being isolationist and racist and, and, and division to coming together and having incredible racial and ethnic and cultural diversity they were just known for that and no one else on the, on the scene was at the time here's the second thing they were known for they were known for service to the poor radical generosity to the poor. The early church was known to take care of not just their own, but the people in the city that were far from God. They would just sell stuff and give stuff away and fund people that couldn't fund their own lives. The early church, number three, was they were known for uh, not retaliating. It was illegal to be a Christian, and so oftentimes um, the, the, the government would come in and they would burn your house down, or they would do something tragic and horrible, and, and the early church would not retaliate in kind when they were persecuted for their faith. They would, they would actually do what Jesus taught, and they would turn the other cheek. Here's the fourth thing that the early church did. They were radically pro-life. Now, obviously, abortion was different in that day and age. You didn't have as many abortions like we do have, like we have today, because it was not safe, as safe to perform an abortion. So what would happen is the, these ladies, oftentimes against their own will, but because of the, their husbands, they would give birth to the baby, and the baby would be literally, physically thrown out on the trash heap. They just throw it out on the trash pile. And Christians were known, the reputation in the city, they were known for going up to those babies and grabbing them and adopting them into their families. They were just, no one asked them to do it. It was just a spirit-driven impulse. And then finally, number five, they, were, they had a highly conservative ethic of sex. Like no one else in that culture had a conservative ethic of sex. You could sleep with whoever, whenever. It, it didn't matter but the early church comes along and it's now sex is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. These are the five things that the early church was known for. And I just, I just want to say like this is what God again is wanting to do and is doing through the life of his church. He's wanting to bring communal transformation so that he is creating a, a very, very beautiful and bright light in a very, very dark world. This is what God is doing. He's creating a city on a hill. He, he's causing us to be salt and light. And this is what we need the Spirit of God to do because you and I can't m produce this in our own strength and our own power. It has to be something that he produces in us for the sake of the mission. See, one of the most beautiful things that could happen is for us as a church to all of a sudden be so infused with the power of the Spirit that we start to see communal transformation like they did, and then people or cities who are skeptical about Jesus or have had bad interactions with the church in the past and been church hurt, want nothing to do with Christianity, can see something different and be drawn to whatever that is. This is what God is doing. It's how we be a church for the city. We need the Spirit of God to do it. Now, let me, let me try to wrap this up, try to close this out. Some of you, many of you probably know this. This is not any new information to you. 
And all of what I'm saying is ours in Jesus. Everything that I'm talking about, the spiritual power, this communal transformation, the life of the Spirit, all of what I'm saying, it's ours in Jesus. He's offering that to us. But have you felt, have you felt the tragic gap between what this says and how our lives look like? Have you felt that in your own life? Like, have you ever prayed for someone that's sick and nothing happens? And maybe that feels like your common experience. And so you've kind of lost faith that God could move and he could, he could really, he could heal a person's body. Have you had that experience where you're, you're talking to your friend about Jesus and you feel like it finally begins to click and you're like, man, you're, you're giving it all you got. It's like all the verses that you know, you're doing your best, you're praying while you're doing it and like right when they, you think they're about to get to the place where they go, okay, I really wanna follow Jesus, nothing happens. Have you ever had that experience where you just look at the world and you feel overwhelmed because you, I, I can't change this. It's so broken. It's such, such a mess. I don't even know where to start. And everything that you try to do, it doesn't feel like anything's sticking. There's a gap, isn't there, between what we read about and our daily experience today. We feel light years away from where this church was. I found this, um, this really, really helpful by Sam Storms. He wrote a great book called The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts years ago. Uh, this is what the cover looks like. I don't know if you can see that, but you would never want to pick that up at a bookstore. That looks just absolutely hideous. Um, I, I told him, I said, Sam, you gotta, you gotta redo this book. And he's like, we're working on it, and they finally did. They now have like a red copy. It looks great, all right? So now it doesn't look weird in a coffee shop to read this book. Um, but I've got the old copy, and listen to what he says in this. I found this really really helpful. He says, I'm encouraged by some things I see in church today. Attendance is up. So is giving, generally speaking. Conferences abound. Sales of books about the Bible and spirituality are soaring. Small groups continue to flourish. The winds of worship are blowing with increasing fervor. But then I look deeper. Beyond the facade of religiosity, the flurry of activity, and the new $25 million sanctuary with padded pews. What I see is a gap, often a chasm between what the church is and what it ought to be. I see the, the disparity between what Christians say and what they do, between what they know and how they live, between what they promise and how much they fulfill. Preachers teach the Bible and people snore. Homemakers share their faith and it falls on deaf ears. Lives are broken and rarely get fixed. Bodies are suffering and fewer healed. Marriages are dying and people just give up. Temptations are faced and sin flourishes. The poor are hungry and stay that way. Seems as if everyone is an opinion and mine may just be one more in a seemingly endless list, but I'm convinced that the problem is power, or should I say the absence of it? And he goes on to say this. My conclusion is this. The real problem, the painful struggles, and our diminishing impact won't be solved short of a fresh infusion of power not just any power, mind you, but spiritual power. The kind of power that human flesh can't produce and education can't conceive and revamped programs can't strategize. The church desperately needs the power of our Lord and the energy and activity of the Holy Spirit. Guys, do you sense and feel your need for the Spirit of God today? This is, 
This is what I want to lead you to is if you feel this gap in your soul of all the things that are offered to you in the Spirit of God and then your life and all the stories that you've read in your life, then this should produce inside of you not despair and not hopelessness, but a hunger and a desire and an openness to what God the Spirit wants to do in and through you. You need the Spirit. And yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but Ephesians 18 tells us not to be drunk with wine, but to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. We are leaky buckets, and we can go from being in love with Jesus, filled with the Spirit, to just a few weeks later, needing more of his presence and of his power. Guys, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, and if the apostles needed the Holy Spirit to do life and ministry, how foolish would it be to think that we don't? We are in desperate need to wait on him to fill us with the Spirit. John Stott, he says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power as a body without breath as a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. And once you get to that place where you feel your need for the Spirit, then where that leads you is to ask and to pray and to seek and to wait and to say, God, would you please come and would you again, in a fresh way, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? Would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? Some of you today, your prayer needs to be a prayer, not just constantly asking forgiveness for the things that you've done wrong last week. Your prayer needs to be God Would you touch me in a fresh way? Some of you are apathetic today and what you need to pray is, God, would you infuse my life with your presence and with your power? Some of you, you're asking for for open doors for mission and what you also need to ask is, God, would you fill me with power so that when those open doors come, I know how to walk through them and I know what to say and I know how you want me to function and live. This is what God is inviting us into. And Jesus says that, He's a good father. Anyone who asks for more of the Holy Spirit says in Luke 11, how much more will our heavenly father give us the Holy Spirit when we ask him?